Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by... Hi, I'm Scott Hahn, and I'd like to invite you personally to join me and Breadbox Media on August 24th in New Oxford, Pennsylvania. For a day of spiritual renewal, I'll be presenting three talks, one on St. Joseph, one on the Sacrament of Matrimony, and another one on the Holy Eucharist. Learn more and register at breadboxmedia.com forward slash PA conference. I hope to see you there. Introducing the redesigned CatholicSingles.com, featuring new ways that put the spotlight on the person and their faith, not just a profile picture. For the past 20 years, faithful Catholics have used CatholicSingles.com, and the reimagined CatholicSingles.com website is ready to help single Catholics take the next step in sharing meaningful relationships with other faithful Catholics. Remember, CatholicSingles.com, for faith, fellowship, and love. This is Setting the Record Straight. I'm Chuck Coughlin on BreadboxMedia.com. Welcome back. We're going to reflect a bit more on the 13th century. Some have called it the greatest century. This is a lovely subject, and I'm returning to it for a second podcast. There could be many more because it's an inexhaustible subject. For some reason, the 13th century was a period in which there was an amazing flowering of the sciences, of intellectual achievement, of universities, of human charity, of an enlightened realization of interpersonal, intimate contact from person to person. On a new graceful level, a perception of the sacredness of each person we encounter each soul-possessing person, each person in a tabernacle of the Holy Ghost. Not just the foundations of individual liberty, but the full realization of individual liberty. An intellectual freedom, a true academic freedom. This was an era of large universities, and many of them, a high percentage of the population attending them. Literacy was widespread among the population, men and women. An absolute academic freedom unknown to Some of the greatest minds lived in this period. We're going to talk mostly about the universities. As one of the many miracles inspired by God, by the God-infused atmosphere of this century. There were plenty of wars in the 13th century, plenty of wars. But nonetheless, there was a vast improvement in the interaction of human beings, of intimate relationships between men and women, It was the era of the troubadours with their refined love song, Trouvier's, the French version, who developed the song, the love song. Music like no other thing shapes how we feel, how we shape our lives. And these songs with their exalted portrayal of women, their adoring emotions about women, have been said by some authorities to have inspired and developed the best version of romantic love as we know it. 
So unlike the Pied Pipers of today's music, debasing our children in the 13th century, people became persons. People acquired liberty, real liberty, in the way we know it. And not just the foundations of individual liberty, but a full realization of individual liberty. The 13th century was extraordinarily different. Well, the 20th century was quite unique in major ways, most of them very negative. The 13th century was like no other in very, very positive ways. It was an immense cultural flowering at that time. I mean cultural in the broadest sense of that word. Everything from the intimate interaction of humans in their family life, in the way they love and express love and act out love, and their dealings in the greater society. There was a flowering of kindliness. But this flowering included the even major advances in technology, science, medicine, law, literature, music, oh, music, and the arts. Many things we're going to discuss. Major advances in government, in technology, in science, in literature. One thing after another. This was conjoined with other things. What could you compare to the 13th century? Well, in the area of just advance of the sciences, the STEM fields. It could be compared to the 19th and 20th century in the STEM fields, many of which found their foundation and are based in the advances of the 12th and 13th century. Yes, we're participants in a time that is rapidly increasing speed, accelerating, diversifying, are proceeding at an incredible pace and accelerating progress. I think very soon we will see whether we have reached out and seized the Promethean fire, fire that we proudly bring back home proudly and accidentally destroy our own homes, our own nests. Or perhaps our inventions will be restrained. Can our inventions be restrained by our recovered humility of our smallness before God? I'm going to address one aspect of this century. It's the university. It's one of the most significant aspects of the 13th century. Or just be driven by profit and power, most of all by power, remains to be seen. Now, don't think that the word university was applied to these institutions because there was a universality of studies that all branches of knowledge might be followed. They weren't called universities. They were called general studies, studium generale. The Latin word universitas had a different usage at the time. All letters and correspondence and documents that were addressed to all the faculty were addressed to universitas, vestera, implying that the greeting was to all of the faculty, universally or without exception. Well, the universities typically grew up around the great cathedrals, which were also a product this time, an amazing product, seemingly dropped from heaven. But they weren't a deliberate creation. The idea of the university was born into the world. Though the university sprang from the wonderful inquiring spirit of the time and the marvelous desire for knowledge and for the higher intellectual life that somehow came over the people of Europe in the 13th century. The school at Paris became famous, attracted pupils during the 12th century because of the newborn interest in scholastic philosophy was the age of the scholastics. After the pupils had gathered in large numbers, and their numbers were huge, 
their enthusiasm led to the establishment of further courses of study. The same thing was true at Bologna in Italy, where the study of law first attracted students, and then the demand for a broader education led to the establishment of other faculties, other departments. And don't think that there was a conscious attempt of any supposed better class to stoop down and uplift those presumably below it. The students at the university did come mainly from the middle class, many from the poor class, not so many from the upper class. Strange fact, a lot of the upper class were illiterate and perhaps self-satisfied in their positions and illiteracy, letting others do their writing and reading for them. These people became ardently devoted to their teachers. It was the it was the teacher, not the institution, that counted for much. For instance, the University of Paris had Abelard, who had seen thousands of students follow him into the distant desert, where he went after retiring. But nearly all aspects of the university life during the 13th century emphasized the democracy of feeling of the students and make it clear that the blowing of the wind of the spirit of human liberty and enthusiasm for intellectual pursuits was the underlying cause of the development of universities. While the great universities, Paris, Bologna, Oxford, were by far the most important, don't think they're the only educational institutions deserving that name, a university, even in our modern sense. There were dozens of other towns and cities that hosted the creation of these universities. Vincenzo, Reggio, Arezzo became university towns so did Padua, Napoli, Vercelli, even in Rome. One of the interesting things about Oxford is for most of its history, it was Catholic. It was founded by 12 orders of monks and scholars. It persisted right on up to the Reformation when the British government confiscated it and one-fifth the land area of all Britain, which had belonged to the Catholic Church. So for most of Oxford's history, it has been a Catholic religious university. It shows all the names and marks in architecture and structure and methods of a Catholic university. Although the universities were large, many of them 20,000 students, the population of all of Europe was small, about 15 million. So a great percentage of the population became scholars. And of course, their volumes were copied by hand. The Catholic Gutenberg had not yet published the first book, the Catholic Vulgate Bible. These books may have been handwritten, but they were copied and copied and copied in the Scriptura, monks and students copying them. Albertus Magnus wrote 20 volumes, and they were copied by hand by the students over and over again. So books were not scarce, scarcely plentiful, but far from scarce. And students traveled about, supported on their way, the poor wandering student was a legendary feature, often about 12 to 15 years old. They had free travel, free lodging everywhere. They had rights. So scholars and students, so-called students, had rights that nobody else had, had laws protecting them that nobody else had. They formed organizations that protected them. There really were something like fraternal organizations in the universities, but they were called nations because the people, say, from English nations and nations related to England. They were democracies. They elected their leaders. They were way ahead of their time, providing a model for the governments of the future. They supported each other. 
if there was an impoverished student, they saw to it he was cared for and fed. And they disciplined each other. Any need for discipline was supplied by these fraternities or nations. The faculties did not administrate the students. So the faculty had no responsibility or worry about discipline at all. The students took care of it themselves. There were really four big nations. In the famous contest between town and gown, if a student had violated some local law, he was represented by his nation, by his fraternity, in the court, in the local court, and protected. It would be correct to call these organizations, these nations, democracies. There really has rarely been a pure democracy other than in the ones in ancient Greece that soon failed because the tyranny of the majority is a problem in a democracy. There's usually a modified form of it. Well, democracy in the nations that we're discussing were always exercised, infused with a spirit of Catholic morality. So they continued to function century after century. You might call them God-guided or Catholic-guided democracies. As I said, they had rights nobody else had. I hope you're seeing the picture the students had an exalted role in society. They were frequently called clerks, clerical, and it did have a religious meaning, not a clerk meaning, not a, someone keeping records. So many of them, of course, became secular again after they graduated. But as students, they were minor members of the clergy. The first degree for which the student of arts presented himself was that of bachelor. He had to publicly defend a certain number of theses against opponents chosen from the audience. The test for the next degree, for the degree of Lensentiate, consisted of an exposition of several tests. After the manner of the masters, the student was now a licensed teacher, if you've progressed this far. He did not become a magister, a teacher, or master of the arts until he had delivered what was called the Inceptio, or inaugural lecture, and was actually installed. In other words, this is his master's thesis. If he continued to teach, he was called magister. It was just at the beginning of the 13th century that the great universities came into being as schools, which in all the ordinary forms of learning were taught. During the 12th century, Bologna had a famous school of law it attracted students from all over Europe. Both canon and civil law were studied there. The intellectual standards were higher than any that had ever existed before in the addressing those subjects. The study of old Roman law brought back with it some interest in the Latin classic. The real renaissance of modern education must be traced from here. In Paris, there was a cathedral school devoted to theology, which gradually became famous for its devotion to philosophy as the basis of theology. It attracted students from every part of the civilized world. The course of studies soon expanded to include all areas of knowledge, and the discussions were conducted with absolute academic freedom, with a robust academic freedom unknown today. Even heresies could be discussed freely. There was none of the rigid political correctness of our puritanical modern universities. These universities had true intellectual freedom. Both of these schools developed faculties in the teaching of all the known branches of knowledge. Think of the University of Bologna. 
Faculties that taught art, philosophy, and medicine were soon added. And the students flocked in in greater and greater numbers. In Paris, the School of Medicine was established very early in the 13th century. There were graduates in medicine before the year 1220. Law came later. It first limited to canon law. The Université at Orléans had a monopoly on civil law for more than a century. These two universities belonging in Paris were in every sense of the word, early in the century, real universities, differing in no special characteristic from our modern institutions. If the age of illumination had done nothing else but put into shape this great instrument, the university, for the training of the human mind, it further maintained and expanded to seven centuries, that alone would attest to its greatness in comparison with other periods of history. We haven't found it advisable to change this mold in which the human intellect has been cast for all these years. If a man wants knowledge for its own sake or for some practical purpose, he finds it here. If he wants liberal arts or considerations of man's duties to himself and to his fellow men, he will find in the faculties of arts and philosophy and theology the great source of knowledge in these subjects. Not just law schools and medical schools, there were institutions, robust ones, teaching other areas. Architecture, engineering, bridge building, what we call the STEM subjects, were handled by the guilds whose technical schools, they didn't call them technical schools, were quite as effective as practical educators. But I want to point out that in the education in the STEM fields, the 13th century accomplished wonders. Anywhere in the known world where there was a codification of laws and a laying down of foundations and jurisprudence, upon which the modern superstructure of law was to rise. It can be traced to these universities. When the century began, men below the ranks of nobles were practically slaves. Whatever rights they had were uncertain, liable to frequent violation because of their indefinite character, and under the tyranny of some conscienceless monarch, might have been lost at any moment. At the end of the century, that was no longer possible. The laws had been codified and written down and the monarchs were bound by them as well as their subjects. Capricious rulers might no longer deprive them arbitrarily. Once in a while, of course, tyrants appeared. There were periods of tyranny, but then any subsequent generation might begin anew its assertion of its codified rights from the old-time laws, rather than from the position to which their forebears had been reduced by a tyrant's whim. Let's talk about books. I do love books. Perhaps you do too. As we consider the 13th century, keep in mind this is 250 years before the art of printing was introduced. And many modern historians, succumbing to their common tendency of failing to check original sources and copying each other, have assumed that it was idle to talk of libraries, and this century the idea of a circulating library would be laughable. But that's a false impression, entirely founded upon a lack of knowledge of the true state of affairs during this wonderful period. A diocesan council held in Paris in 1212 recalled to all these universities and monasteries that they had the duty to lend such books as they might possess, with, of course, a proper guarantee for their return. It was formally declared that the lending of books was one of the works of mercy. At Notre Dame, 
The cathedral chapter was one of the leaders in this matter. And the records show that they lent large volumes of books during this century. And at all the abbeys around Paris, each one had considerable libraries. And the lending custom was practiced everywhere. Of course, the number of books was not large, but on the other hand, it must not be forgotten that many of them were works of art. These books have been recognized to be artistic treasures in every succeeding century and continue to be among the most precious bibliophilic treasures of great state and city libraries. Their value depends not just on their antiquity, but on their perfection as works of art. They're counted as the best examples of bookmaking the world has ever seen. The more you know about this period, it becomes less of a surprise, since these books were mainly meant for use in the cathedrals and the chapels. And these magnificent edifices are indeed beautiful in every detail. So the people could not think of making books for use in them unworthy of this artistic environment. As with the candlesticks, the vessels, and implements used in the ceremonies are all amazing works of art. Every form of decoration is nearly perfect as to be a source of unending admiration, right down to the vestments and altar linen specimens of the most exquisite handiwork of their kind that has ever been made. Now, when I call this the age of illumination, I'm well aware that that's a pun in a way. The sense of which I mean it is illuminated by God's Spirit. But there's a second meaning to the word illumination. It's the decorating of each page of a book with drawings and symbols, which you may have seen and admired in the Irish Book of Kells. That state of excellence is often thought to be the only peak of the art of illumination. But in the great university libraries of mainland Europe, we find illuminated books, codexes, of equal artistic value. Illumination was an invention of this century, but this century saw the introduction of the miniature as a principal feature, and the drawing out of initials in such a way as to make an illuminated border for the whole side of the page. Different epics of the art of illumination present widely different and distinct styles, the most showy and the best known, though the least pure and inventive in design, being that of the middle and end of the 15th century. While the period, perhaps the least generally known, that of our century we're considering, may be considered as the most interesting and original. Many of the best works of that period displaying an astonishing variety and profusion of invention. These illuminations are worthy of the time and also typical of the general work of the century. These illuminations are known by experts for their originality and for their wealth of invention. One of these books, A Book of Beasts or Bestadium, is in the Ashmolean Museum at Oxford. This is said to be a very beautiful example of the illumination of the 13th century. But it, there's something more interesting. It shows the efforts of the artists some of the time to copy nature from the pictures of animals as they are presented. The sharpness of observation and vigor of representation displayed in these books is amazing. Circulating libraries from which one may borrow a book were actually quite common as might be expected of the people so practical. It was they who established the rule that the book might be taken out provided its value was deposited by the borrower. There were lending libraries at Sorbonne, Saint-Germain, as well as at Notre-Dame. Every one of the larger abbeys 
had a library where a person could go and borrow books? The regulations were interesting. The chief librarian had the charge of all the books of the whole community. Now, many of these universities and libraries were in small towns, but some were not. The librarian had the charge of all the books in that community, and he was required to have a detailed list of them in each year to have them brought into his possession at least three times. On him was placed the obligation to see that the books were not destroyed in any way, either by parasites or by dampness. The librarian had a responsibility to arrange the books on shelves or on tables so that someone could find them easily. Of course, the borrower had to leave a pledge for the safe return. This was emphasized particularly for strangers, who must give a pledge equally to the value of the book. In all cases, the name of the borrower was recorded, also the title of the book and the kind of pledge left, and we have a lot of these records. The larger and more precious books could not be borrowed without the special permission of the superior. And it's from these records, some of which still exist, that we see that there was extensive literacy. I want to talk about the Hotel Dieu, which is the great hospital in Paris that had 6,000 beds in the year 1000. And it still exists. The Hotel Dieu, the Hotel of God. They had a great library from the earliest time, mainly on medicine. There's no question that this is the first regular hospital library. Probably the best working library in Paris was that of the Sorbonne. From the very beginning, the professors bequeathed whatever books they had collected to its library, and this became a custom. So, within a very short time, the Sorbonne's library became one of the very best in Europe. Though this library contained a large number of sacred books, of course, but it contains a large number of works of secular literature, of profane literatures. Interesting details with regard to this library and its precious treasures. I want to mention that not only the professors and students borrowed from these libraries, but anyone interested in books and literature who might even come from somewhere else, provided they were properly identified and accredited, were loaned these books. There was a great liberality of spirit of the early scholars. Books, of course, that are used become deteriorated. So manuscripts are borrowed from neighboring libraries and copied, and they were copied a lot. In some abbeys, when a young person formally joined the community, on that day, he was expected to bring a volume of considerable size that he had copied with great care by his own hand. It's impossible to cover in a few short podcasts any but a tiny fraction of the achievements of this age. But why don't we go on with a few more podcasts about it, about some of the more fantastic aspects of the Age of Illumination. In the next segment, I'm going to discuss something delightful. The title of the podcast is Romantic Love and Kindliness in the 13th Century. Give a listen to the next podcast. You're going to find out that Merry Old England really was Merry Old England in the Age of Illumination. This is Chuck Coughlin, setting the record straight about the glorious history of our beloved Catholic Church. This is BreadboxMedia.com.
Hello, this is international Catholic singer Anna Nuzzo, inviting you to join me and Father Dan Cambra of the Marian Fathers on a select international tour's Divine Mercy pilgrimage to Poland and the Czech Republic. It takes place in September of 2019, and we would love for you to join us. For more information, go to my website, AnnaNuzzo.com. Thank you, and God bless. Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by Jack Kane Ford. Find your next Ford Tough vehicle at KaneFord.com.